So the first question I've got um, is about the poem The Oncologist, which is mm -hmm. in the distal point. And there's the opening lines of that poem, which go, poets are meant to suffer, use it. You know, that's the kind of thing I think, if you don't write poetry, um, you probably think, you know, that is the nature of poets. They have bad experiences and they turn them in, into poetry. Mm. As you are a practicing poet, how does it really work? What's the, the relationship between between life and what goes in your life and how you turn it into a, into a poem? It's a good question, but it's one I'm very reluctant to mm. answer because I don't want to analyse it. Yeah. Um, because I'm afraid if I analyse my thought processes too much, then uh, I'll get too self-conscious about them and whatever they are, they'll stop working. What I can say is I think that poem was one of a particular sort of poem where I know consciously it's in my head that I want to write uh, that poem, but I don't really know what that poem is yet. But in this case, it was definitely anchored around that statement that the oncologist really did make. That was a verbatim quote and it's stayed with me ever since. I know that I don't know how to do it yet and it's better just to wait and that with luck one day something will happen and suddenly I'll be able to write the poem. What sometimes happens is that I'll be reading uh, somebody else's work, could be anyone from any period, I'll suddenly go, oh, I can write that poem now and probably to any third party able to get inside my head. They wouldn't see why the, the work I was reading particularly did it. But it might be something to do with the tone that sets me off. Mm. That happened with a shirt, which I had this very clear image of this torn up shirt in the corner of the airing cupboard for, for several years. And then I was reading a book by an American poet. I think she died a few years ago. She was uh, an American, a Jewish American poet who came over with the kinder transport to America. And an American friend of mine in London had introduced uh, our poetry, a poetry group to her work. But I mean, the Wellspring's inspiration are, are very strange. I mean, I was tempted to you know, think because it's a doctor saying it, doctors like formulas and you know, mm. procedures and practice mm. to follow. You know, if this happens, then, then mm. that happens. But you know, I, I, I work in poetry and even I am <laughs> attracted to, to sort of glib mm. maxims like that. Mm. You know, nothing's wasted. Mm. <laughs> if you have a, a bad experience as a writer, you can, you can turn it into, into something and, and then you know, I don't know if that helps you get over the, the experience, mm. but certainly you have something at the end of it mm. that, that a person mm. doesn't write or, or creates art has. But mm. I, I worry that it's, 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 too, it's too simple, and as you're indicating yourself, how it works, how poetry works, how inspiration works, is a lot more impressionistic or, 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 mm. or, or a chance, I guess, as well. Mm. Now, some people have said that statement sounded rather brutal. Um, you just said that maybe maybe it could be taken as glib, but it wasn't really either of those at yeah. all. It was it was in a, as part of a, a kind of very serious conversation. Following on from that, Liesel Miller. Liesel Sorry, Miller. I've just remembered her name. That's the name of the poet whose reading whose work started selected poems uh, started me off on the shirt. Well, you know, memories is mysterious as well as uh, inspiration, and the two are linked. Um, so I'm I'm. You know, while reading your poems and reading that the oncologist has reminded me, you know, the famous words of lyrical ballads that you know poetry mm. is emotion, mm. recollected in tranquility, and there's a number of poems mm. in the distal point which deal with the subject of grief. You know, my own experiences of grief. Uh, I'm not a poet, so of course, but in my experience of grief, it was hard to get to a zone of tranquility, as it were, in which mm. to to recollect that. You know, as Wordsworth describes it. 
what was your your experience you know not not so much of what caused grief but you know what was your experience in moving from that to thinking about that to writing the poems that are based on those experiences that you had oh my, par my partner was ill for eight months and we knew fairly early on that it was terminal because um, he had a brain tumor and I kind of knew that I needed to go on writing and I did write a few poems while he was ill and then after he died I thought I need to go on writing and um, just about a, maybe a week or two after he died someone emailed around a circular saying that the bookings for the poetry school courses were open and at that time Mimi Calvati was doing the versification course which mm. was kind of famous a famous thing she a course she did on everything from stress meter right the way through to sonnets and free verse and I tried to get on it before and it had been booked up so I thought okay this is my lifeline I'm going to book this and I'm going to make myself go on it every week barring a complete disaster uh, and I did I don't think I missed any of them um, and I, I think an, an earlier experience was I'd had my first poem accepted by a magazine while my partner was ill because I remember taking him the acceptance letter in hospital it was by the Rialto so that was quite something uh, at that stage I had no idea whether I'd be able to get published and at that stage I thought okay so this as an I know this is my lifeline and that's a knot in my lifeline that I can hold on to to stop it slipping and then the versification course was another knot uh, I think it was on a Tuesday evening and I'd come, I'd spend maybe the weekend and the Monday and the Tuesday in Suffolk where my partner lived, clearing his house out uh, for the first couple of months because uh, I had to move out because it was rented. And then I'd go down on the train on the Tuesday afternoon and no one on the course except one other person who was on it knew that my partner had just died, which was, meant I had to behave normally, which was a very good discipline. So uh, poetry was actually very important. Uh, it, it really was a lifeline. I started writing poem 10101010010 uh, very soon after he, he died, after Graham died. But it started off as a much longer, rather mawkish poem. <laughs> and it <laughs> ended up as uh, eight very short lines. <laughs> yes. Could we maybe hear it actually? It, yeah, sure. 101010. Your death works in binary mode, on, off, forget, remember. A cold code to decipher, too late for us. Your death kills me a thousand times, the tyranny of repetition. You, me, here, there, zero, one. So that was a much longer poem and you, yeah. you, you sort of like a sculptor picked out the poem from it. Yeah, there was a lot of dead wood in it. Yeah. This is a slightly mixed metaphor. You review poetry, and mm -hmm. I'm always interested in, you know, because I used to, mm -hmm. in, my, in a former life, I was a journalist and right. did reviewing as well, and I'm always interested in, you know, when I talk to fellow reviewers, you know, what, what typically pleases you or displeases you about a collection of poetry? What are your sort of very broad, no doubt, um, parameters or, or rules for yourself? Mm. I'm not sure I have any. I try to start reading with an open mind. I tend generally to read books quite quickly the first time and then not necessarily from the front. I might I quite often start at the back or even just open somewhere in the middle. 
And then if I'm reviewing something a second time, I'll read it from page one to page whatever, uh, right the way through. But with the first reading, it's very important to jot down kind of impressions mm -hmm. because sometimes they might not make sense to anyone else but me, but I can, like, notes, initial notes can be very useful at a later stage. So in a previous life, I think you worked for the Foreign Office. And yeah. several of the poems in Distal Point reflect on that. So you have a poem in 1985, and I was wondering if the scene in it is typical of some of the situations you found yourself in while working for the Foreign Office. Yes. It tries to convey what it was like being in Poland, going off to, uh, I think in this case, it's, I was kind of imagining another city, though it could have been in Warsaw itself. But we, used to, we used to go off and make official calls in uh, other Polish cities. And you'd end up going to see the provincial governor uh, and other local notables and the editor of the local paper and so on. So you do a round of sort of calls and ceremony and try and have interesting conversations with these people. Sometimes you can have really good, interesting conversations with them. Sometimes you couldn't. Every now and then they'd cast their eyes to the ceiling, which was kind of shorthand for, I can't really talk about that because uh, we're being bugged. Yes. Um, I mean, the poem is is not a specific incident, it's more a kind of amalgam. I mean, I guess these East European poems are sort of, um, they're a kind of recreation of that world as I experienced it then. From my point of view, they're deeply factual, but uh, that's not necessarily anyone else's factual. An exclave, for example, is based on a real visit to a, a border, to mm. Kaliningrad, a border between Poland and Kaliningrad. It's interesting the poem's called 1985, because mm -hmm. I felt while reading it, you could have called it 2019. You've got a few poems that, reading in the current climate, I felt, you know, although they were looking back to a period in which you were working in a country mm -hmm. that was essentially a dictatorship or an authoritarian mm -hmm. country, with all the things that are happening politically in the world mm -hmm. right now, I felt it was all, it was very contemporary. It felt like, I felt mm -hmm. very much like, it's just as well you put 1985 on it, or else I would have thought mm -hmm. you were writing about what's yeah. happening now. I would love to write good poetry about contemporary political events. I mean, I've just chaired a panel on climate change poetry with four really good eco-poets, uh, and I'm envious of, and in awe of all of them uh, for being able to write such good poetry that reflects the, the state we're in at the moment. Mm. So I suppose one of my way of doing it so far has been to write about uh, the past. Mm. It's a bit like those films, so you might see, I don't know, a Jane Austen film that was made in the 1950s, and you can tell it's the 1950s from the hairstyles and the costumes. They're, all, they're obviously all in, Regent, quote, Regency, unquote, costume, but it's got the 1950s take. So in the 1950s, you wouldn't have noticed. You'd have only noticed the Regency bit. You'd have thought, yeah, there's really very good authentic costumes and hairstyles. It's particularly the hairstyles. Mm. Um, but when you, when you look at the film now, you think, oh, God, look at, the, look at her hair. It's so 1950s. You know, it's a really interesting set of poems, the sort of Polish poems from within there, you know, because you've got the poem Museum, which mm. I think is an excellent um, introduction to the sort of, the mind, you know, of a sort of, authoritarian state where you're going in and I think there's a line about everything on the walls is a lie basically isn't it? Yeah that was set in Ceausescu's Romania. Oh it was Romania? In the Ceausescu right. Museum. Wow. Which is why you've got President and Madame in there. Ah. Um, I mean although Poland did have a president. Yes. Sort of formal it wasn't quite the cult of personality uh, they had in Romania was it? No no it's completely different. Uh, completely different. 
political setup. Uh, so there was a Polish president, but it was just a, a formal position, didn't really do anything at all, as far as I remember. Um, but no, the Ceausescu's obviously were another matter altogether. And there was a Ceausescu museum in Bucharest, and we went there. Uh, it was really very weird. So you would have been there in the last years of the, the regime then? Yeah, I think, I think we went in 1986. Wow, so only three years before the, the fall yeah. of Ceausescu. And it, yes. was it like all these sort of regimes, they seem entirely mm. impregnable and unlikely to fall right up until the moment they do fall? Uh, yeah, I think so. And that was, uh, Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union in what, 1985 was it? Something like that, yeah. And so Glasnost and Perestroika, his kind of attempts to make economic and social, socio-political change were only just starting. I certainly couldn't really see beyond the Iron Curtain, having lived with it all my life. And it was, Romania was very repressive. And as I say in the poem, people joke by grinning and nodding their heads at the giant head-on hoardings, because you, you get these huge hoardings with the President and, and Madame Ceausescu on them. Golly, that was a strong man regime, wasn't it? Yeah. Too strong. Museum. The walls of the museum are papered with lies. Each lie lasts as long as the lights stay on, and the lights go out when we leave each room. All the rooms have wood parquet flooring. Floors polished by felt-slippered feet, six sliding feet, our own and the guards. Guard because this feels like a prison. People go to prison for jokes in this country, so they joke by grinning and shaking their heads at the giant head on hoardings of the President. In here, President and Madame smile in photo after photo, welcoming delegations. Here he welcomes peasants in national dress, singing national songs who offer him fruit. Yet fruit and vegetables are unknown to the shops, the bare-shelved shops. Just noodles and cans, Canned fish pyramids in window displays. This displays the flowering of industry. Flowers for Madame from car plant workers. But the cars they make are not on the streets. Streets that are empty at night and dark as the dark of the museum's windowless walls. One wall in each room is painted red, with the reddest red in the last empty room. You know, I was reading those poems and I didn't know if someone had actually specifically said this or it was a general sort of truism, but I mean, it's interesting that dictators, authoritarian people are one of the groups that takes poetry very seriously. Your man in the street mm -hmm. may or may not care about poetry, but authoritarian types care very much about it. It's like always, it's usually the poets are the first people to end up in prison, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Did you run into any poets when you were, or writers when you were behind the Iron Curtain, as it were? Well, I came across people like Adam Michnik and Jacek Kuron, who were dissidents who were very, uh, very good, very powerful writers. I came across a couple of poets. Uh, at that time, nobody knew I was interested in writing poetry, and I wrote about one poem every three years and kept it completely quiet. Yes. Um, I've got at home. I've got a, a poster of, a, uh, of some cartoons from this cartoonist called Shimon Kobylinski, whose cartoons would sometimes appear in the most liberally liberal Sunday newspaper. Um, sometimes there'd be a blank space because they hadn't been passed by the censor. Uh, there's actually a reference to one of those in one of the other poems in here. So the life belt on the on the seashore. So you've got you know your 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 beach and a stake with a life belt 
on it and the life belt's got barbed wire wound all around it. Mm. Um, which is, that's not actually in the poster, as I say in the poem, but there's another one that is on the poster that has the life belt and it's got a sign underneath saying summer obscurgo, which means self-service. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of it is this loudspeaker in another one, there's just a huge loudspeaker and it's shouting, silence! Yes. I mean, I read them now. I didn't read people like uh, Bignev Herbert and Cheswold Miłosz then. Mm. I do now, full of admiration for, for um, Wisława Szymborska as well, and would like to know more about more contemporary, uh, uh, younger Polish poets. Looking back at the troubled Europe of the 1980s, um, we take a step forward to the troubled Europe of 2019. <laughs> uh, you have a, a Brexit poem. You know, I've been looking for Brexit poems. I haven't found a huge amount of Brexit poems, but mm. you, you've written one from and you from the point of view, the experiences viewed from the point of view of, of ice cream, which was mm. very interesting. What what inspired that? Uh, it was in the middle of a conversation about Brexit, which is I think the title of the poem. Mm. So, again, this was another one I wrote while I was staying with these friends and reading um, Mary Jo Bang. Uh, we were having a conversation about Brexit and we started discussing the flavours of Wall's Neapolitan ice cream. Mm. Wall's uh, is very uh, an interesting word is it, as well. Well, it? That, I, mean, <laughs> I think that's what set me off. I mean, I, I didn't deliberately write a poem about Brexit. I just wrote the poem. And there we were. And of course, everyone said, oh, obviously the ice cream is a metaphor. So interestingly used about borders and, and integration and... At the Melody. time, I just wrote the poem. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it, it does lend itself very well to it, you know, because, mm. as I was saying, the name of the people mm. making it is Walls, which makes yeah. you think of borders, Trump, etc., and mm. the different colours, mm. like the, the Italian flag, the mm. tricolour, but melting as well, you know, the things that um, used to seem so solid. In the middle of a discussion about Brexit, we started debating the flavours of Walls Neapolitan, Strawberry, then vanilla, and either chocolate or pistachio, depending on, on whether or not they stand for the Italian flag. Not that my childhood memories are about its taste, but rather a cold creaminess, generically sweet. The flavours were just a descant, an extra joy floating above the rest, and a choice of which one to quarry out first. Something magical lurked in the block. The boundaries between stripes weren't visible like a drawn line, but a concept arising at the end of, say, green and the start of white. How did they make the band stick together so neatly without blurring? Part of the pleasure of eating was that it went with this thought, never voiced. Would anyone still know how to do that? To find out, you might search in a factory archive, rust-stained filing cabinets stuffed with typewritten pages of industrial secrets. But the factory is probably long closed, and you'd have to visit some gleamingly international HQ which would refuse to allow you in. At last you'd find the retired supervisor, now proud of the stripes on his front lawn, who'd explain the recipe and show you photos of the production line before they sold it for scrap. Whatever the process, and flag or none, it's impossible not to keep reverting to the state of things. For example, that parties of the right would split over what the third colour should be and how high the walls, that all would agree the world's not melting. So how was it done? 
an invisible taste and textualist ingredient gluing each join, or a certain property infusing the whole. Or they dropped each frozen strip into place and pressed them lightly together. It could be that simple. Um, last question. So the collection, I think, is, you might describe it as being like a haunted collection, haunted by personal ghosts and ghosts from history. Maybe this is a glib question, but I'll ask anyway. So did writing the distal point, writing the poems that comprise this collection, was it an exorcism of sorts? I'd certainly, I'd never knock uh, poetry as therapy. I do think writing about, not necessarily in, in my terms, an uh, accurate narration of experience, but writing, I, I do find writing poetry, well, I kind of need to do it, I mm. suppose. And writing a poem that ultimately is successful, it's quite a rare experience. I mean, no poem is successful, it's always fail better, but it can be very satisfying. And then there's the excitement when you discover a new writer or when you introduce other people to a new writer. I did a talk in um, the church in central Greenwich, St Alphages, a couple of weekends ago. Um, they have a poetry talk once a month as part of their evening song. And I did a talk on Norman McCaig. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and none of them had ever heard of him. He's not that well known in England. Sad. I know. Um, and of course, W.S. Graham, among poetry types, is having a great renaissance, which is wonderful. I, mm. He's one of the poets I read in order to write. But I read them poems like the, at the graveyard, By the Graveyard at Luscantire and The Basking Shark and that corncrake poem. And I really loved it. To the moon on New Year's Eve. Full moon, casket of wishes, neat-lidded moon, heaven-framed. Ten thousand ghosts are furled inside your circle. Moon, I will post, love, a midnight blue word across your faith to roll with you slowly in three dimensions. Turn towards earth and inextricable from a sky deep enough to hold all dreams. Looked at for as long as I look at you, love will soon become meaningless. So I will formalise the losing of hope. For your course, moon, is solitary. You journey without trading, though not without leading astray. Zone me into your treeless, pale desolation, O moon, and let your distance weigh my thought by its proportions. Um, and I'll read Interruption. Uh, so this is set... Um, I read this at the reading I did last night with the Five O'Clock Verses with Alan Spence because we were reading in the Parliament Hall, which is... Uh, bisected by the St Andrew's Meridian line, which is older and further west than the Greenwich one, of course. So um, this is set on the Greenwich Meridian um, in Greenwich Park. Interruption. There's a crow ringing, is a telephone hopping blackly across the grass. And you're in my ear saying, is my memory a burden to you? Your voice, matter of fact, but also concerned. No, this never occurred to me until you asked. Who asked? It's a fine thing to live with, though I'd rather live with you. Look over there on a bench, woman and man making what they can of each other. And here I am, hearing voices, when I'd only expected to get across the park as fast as possible. 
through the trees now gone into their mode of winter. Their growth away slow from their sapling selves, but the shape still visible in them. Thank you very much.